0: So tonight's talks are one of two events related to the current exhibition, Collecting for the Boston Athenaeum in the 21st Century, Prints and Photographs. In that exhibition, I have exhibited just a handful of the more than 1,200 objects that we have acquired for the department since 2000. As many of you may know, um, the Prints and Photographs Department here at the Athenaeum is a regionalist collection. Our mission is to visually document New England culture, its social and political life, as well as its built-in natural environment. But many of you may not be aware of how heavily used this collection is by scholars across a wide variety of disciplines, both online and on-site, by members and non-members alike. So this collection is used Night people in California and in Russia and all over the world. It's quite remarkable. So over the past two or three decades there's been a growing awareness of the importance of visual material and visual culture and scholars are turning more and more to visual objects to see what they can tell us about the society that created and consumed them. And I am going to share with you very briefly just one example before I introduce our speakers tonight. And I have deliberately chosen an object whose uh, scholarly appeal uh, may not be um, terribly obvious. This is a piece of ephemera. It is a large advertising print for men's shirt collars. Now for many years I will confess that this was one of my least favorite objects in the collection. (laughs) Um, I, frankly, found it to be a little ridiculous, and its design seemed to be at conflict in conflict with its advertising message. Who, after all, what man would wish to buy a shirt collar that was likened to an ox harness, as you can see here, and what to make of those cannons on the back of the oxen? or the rifle or the Uncle Sam figure. Well, a few years ago, we were fortunate enough to have a really wonderful young man here on an Athenaeum Fellowship, um, writing his dissertation on changing attitudes towards masculinity in the late 19th century and how those attitudes um, gave rise to the muscular Christianity movement. He had been looking at a lot of objects from the prints and photographs department and he was very visually astute. So one day he asked to see this print and I did not share with him my opinion about this print but I pulled it for him and uh, when I showed it to him He was so excited that he actually kind of, I think he levitated a little bit. He was so thrilled and he said to me that this one image summarized everything he had been struggling to say in several chapters in his dissertation. He was in a state of nirvana for the rest of his fellowship and he spent hours looking and talking about this image. So from this, I concluded a few things. First of all, I learned a little humility. But I also uh, concluded that no matter how ephemera an object is, how ephemeral it is, or um, how silly or corny it might be to modern eyes, there is a wealth of information that that image can share with us if we are only open to it and look closely at it. I also concluded that for every object in my department, and we have over 100,000 items, for every object in our collection, there is a researcher who will love it. And it is really the duty of the Athenaeum staff to hook up researchers with an object that they will love. Through very sophisticated online uh, cataloging and through um, other efforts, we sort of act as a highbrow online dating system for researchers, which brings me to our uh, guest speakers tonight. Um, I am very happy to introduce these people. They are Christy Jackson, Martha McNamara, and James Bradley. Our speakers are all distinguished scholars, and they are all, all longtime members of the Boston Athenaeum, whom I have had the pleasure of knowing for many years. This past spring, I invited them to each choose one object of their desire from the exhibition and to discuss how that object is relevant to their research. Um, Our next speaker tonight is Martha McNamara. She is an art and architectural historian. She specializes in vernacular architecture, landscape history, and New England visual and material culture. She received her master's and doctorate degree from Boston University in American and New England studies. Currently, Dr. McNamara is on the faculty at Wellesley College as director of the New England Arts and Architecture Program. And she is also co-director of their architecture program in the Department of Art. She has published extensively in her field, including um, a recent essay on race and ethnicity and printed urban views, which is part of a larger scholarly project on landscape representation in 18th and 19th century New England. In addition, she is the author of From Tavern to Courthouse, Architecture and Ritual in American Law. She's co-editor of New Views of New England, Studies in Material and Visual Culture. And a new endeavor, she is a co-editor of Amateur Movie Making, Aesthetics of Everyday in New England Film. She also was recently appointed Chair of the Board of Directors at the Bostonian Society. On a personal note, I'd like to add that Dr. McNamara worked here at the Boston Athenaeum as an intern while she was pursuing her graduate degree and I first had the pleasure of working with her nearly 25 years ago while she was researching courthouse architecture for her dissertation. So please welcome Dr. McNamara.
1: Thank you so much, Katharina. And I also want to thank um, Pat Bulos and Deborah Vernon. Um, Katharina and Pat helped me with the research for this topic and also for getting images for uh, this talk. Um, I also want to congratulate Katharina, not only on the beautiful exhibit that she's put together, but also um, for all the wonderful objects that she has collected for the Boston Athenaeum over the last 25 years or more. I know the show just shows a fraction of the things that have come into the collection under Kath, Katharina's uh, stewardship, um, but I really think it speaks to the richness and diversity of the objects that she's been collecting. Um, now, it's, it was very hard for me to pick a single object to focus on. There are many that I would have loved to, um, excuse me, let me get, there we go. There are many images that I would, many objects that I would have really loved to have talked to you about tonight, but I was particularly drawn to the bird's eye view of Boston um, because I'm at work on research for a book that explores depictions of New England between 1750 and 1860. And for this project, I'm looking at three different types of landscape representation. I'm looking at narratives, that is to say, textual descriptions of places in New England. I'm looking at cartography, maps and town plans, and also at pictorial images, um, landscape paintings and prints. And for the later period of my study, from about 1830 to 1860, um, I'm particularly interested in city views. Uh, and the overarching question I bring to all of this, this whole project, is how did New Englanders depict their region? Why did they, And why did they depict it in the way that they did? What can these words and images tell us about late 18th and early 19th century New Englanders' sense of place? Um, so for today, I'm going to focus on the bird's eye view of Boston. And I want to walk us through a close study of this one city view um, and think about how the producers of this image depicted Boston and why they chose to represent the city in the way that they did. To answer that key question, we'll do some close looking, but also explore as best we can who made the image and why, who purchased it and why, and how this object fits into the broader context of other city views. So who, what, where, and when. And then for me, the most important question is why. Why do these things look the way that they do? Now, first a little context. Uh, City views became hugely popular in the second quarter of the 19th century. Some were clearly meant to advertise businesses, um, and I want to show this one particularly, this is another Fitz Henry Lane, very different from the ship Massachusetts, um, advertising a local foundry in South Boston. Um, others marked public celebrations and events. Uh, this is the introduction of water to the city of Boston, the celebration. While others drew on the traditions of landscape painting to present a beautiful image of your hometown suitable for hanging in your parlor or in your place of business. Now, it's important to remember that city views were not invented in the 19th century. The earliest views we have of Boston date from the mid 18th century, and this is a uh, reproduction of William Price's 1748 view of Boston, and I want you to particularly notice the emphasis on, oops, the emphasis on mercantile trade all the ships in the harbor here, right? And then also Long Wharf stretching out into the harbor. And the other thing to notice is look at all those church steeples. These were people who were very interested in representing their piety and in their mercantile trade. The production of city views grows along with the advent of literary magazines at the end of the 18th century and then really explodes with the changes in print technology in the 19th century. The big push in this regard was the development of lithography in the 1820s. Earlier printing processes, primarily copper plate engraving, uh, were very expensive, they were technically difficult, they were laborious, and that meant that the resulting prints were really, really expensive. Um, The development of printing on stone And I have to say that in the exhibit, Katharina has a wonderful lithographic stone with an image on it of a Boston belt-making manufacturer. Again, it's an advertisement, but if you want to get a sense of what these lithographic stones were like, take a look at the exhibit. Um, the development of printing on stone enabled a wider group of artists to produce many more city views uh, more quickly and more cheaply. Also, with the advent of color printing around mid-century, printers could add a range of colors without the time-consuming process of hand coloring. So the growth of lithography and the increase in city views went hand in hand. In fact, the historian John Reps argues that views of towns and cities were the most popular category of printed images in the 19th century, and he estimates that more than 5,000 or so separate prints of as many as 2,400 different places appeared before the fad for city views ended in the early 20th century. Now, of these, by far the most popular was a genre of uh, print called a bird's-eye view. Um, And these were views that portrayed cities as if seen from an imaginary viewpoint high up in the air. This format had the advantage of showing every building, street, and open space of the urban community, as well as the surrounding area. Often, and, and they often did so in extraordinary detail so let's take a close look at the uh, city view in our collection, in the exhibit. Um, focusing first on the image itself, and uh, we can the first thing that we can notice is the uh, real prominence that's given to the construction of the back bay. See over here. As you all know, uh, the Back Bay neighborhood, the, its construction was facilitated by a huge land reclamation project that began around 1858. And not only do we see the laying out of the Back Bay grid from Back Street along Charles, along the Charles um, to Boylston Street, and also from Arlington to about Dartmouth Street, we also see the active construction of buildings. And I have to say, I really love this. In this corner here, you can see Um, the construction of the buildings going up in the back bay. You get a sense, then, of the city as a kind of beehive of activity, as uh, an unstoppable force of city building going forward. Our eye is then drawn to the middle ground of of the print, and here is the center of the city, or the elder part of the city, as one writer put it. And it's depicted as dense and thriving. A bustling waterfront with smoke curling from productive factories, closely packed residential areas with hints of municipal buildings and urban parks. So we have uh, a thriving waterfront here, densely packed residential neighborhoods. Here's the state house and here are the urban parks, the Boston Common and the Public Garden. In the, and this is the two views put together to give you a sense of uh, the fore and the middle ground. In the distance is the harbor, and the harbor actually takes up about a third of the image um, and seems to stretch on limitlessly, its islands meticulously detailed. Many of the ships close to shore, near, the, near many there are many ships close to shore near the docks, but the harbor itself is also dotted with boats, and particularly important particularly important is the presence of ships on the horizon line. So we have uh, ships here close to the docks but also dotting the harbor, and then importantly a sort of line of ships out here along the horizon line. It's not the intensity of shipping activity that we saw in that 18th century view, but clearly the harbor continues to be one of Boston's most important defining features. And if we put all these things together we get a dense, bustling, thriving city. Now we can also move vertically through, the, through this image and on the left we notice the emphasis on transportation networks, particularly down here. In this case, primarily railway routes connecting Boston to its neighboring towns and ultimately to its agricultural hinterland. I also uh, just want to draw your attention to the depiction of Charlestown here. Jim, you'll be interested in this. Charlestown is this really funny little sliver of land right here, you can see the Bunker Hill Monument. Um, and I'm so interested in that, and you have to remember that 1870s was the time when Boston was annexing neighboring towns. Uh, I think Roxbury was first in 1868, and um, Charlestown uh, becomes annexed in 1870. And in this image, it seems as though Boston is already pulling Charlestown into its, uh, into its orbit. Now when we concentrate on the center slice, we see that the West Boston Bridge uh, has served as a kind of anchor point for the composition, bringing us from our imaginary bird's eye vantage point right through the center of the city and out to the harbor. So again, putting those two together. And on the right, we see South Boston, an area also being reshaped by large-scale landfill projects. You can see here. South Boston. Um, In fact, the grid of South Boston seems to echo the grid of the Back Bay, but also with a thriving waterfront of shipping and manufacturing. Now, what's amazing about these city views, um, and not just this one, but others of this format, there it is all together again, is that you get both the grand sweep of a, hold on, you get both the grand sweep of a uh, late 19th century American city, but also some extraordinary details of the urban environment. Again, looking at the detail of the buildings of the Back Bay, you can practically see the masons hoisting foundation stones into, places for, into place for the new buildings. And when you actually go out into the city and look, you can also often find that the artist was incredibly faithful to what they saw. So here, this is the corner of Beacon and Clarendon, same on Fuchs's view here. And you can see this building has its uh, trimstone two layers there, this Oriole window is here, the fenestration is the same, and then down the block, a similar building with its four aureoles and its mansard roof. I mean, he really got it closely, he really got it. the details right on this one. Now, Fortunately, for most of these city views, they contain a title that identify the place depicted. Um, and in this case, we are not only fixed in space, but we're also fixed in time. It's not just any day in Boston, it's the 4th of July. Um, and again, we see, we see this in the image. We see flags uh, waving on, Boston Brid- on, on the West Boston Bridge here. We see in the harbor the cannons firing and the flags flying at all the forts. And if we look very closely at Boston Common, we can see a parade taking place here and here. And we see um, mounted militia going through their paces and we see cannons firing. And of course, we see the jet doe, uh firing at Frog Pond on Boston Common. Again, you get a sense not only of the density of the streetscape of Boston, but also the details of urban activity. We can also usually get information on, the, on uh, these prints' producers uh, from the print itself. The bird's eye view of Boston tells us that the artist and lithographer was a man named F. Fuchs and that the print was, uh, and that it was printed at the New England Lithography Company. Now F. Fuchs is a bit of a mystery, but I think he was a man called Fyodor Fuchs, a lithographer working mostly in maps in the 1850s in Philadelphia. He was probably of German origin, in fact the field of lithography was dominated by immigrant artisans, many of them from Germany. In the 1860s, he is believed to be the artist of the vignettes surrounding this map of New Haven County by a Philadelphia publisher. These little vignettes are thought to have been by him. And in the 1860s, he turned to the very popular genre of prints of Civil War battles and heroes. He possibly moved to New York. One of his prints lists a New York City address, but he was clearly using New York printers and publishers. By 1870, the date of the bird's eye view of Boston, we know that Fuchs had established connections back in Philadelphia with the publisher John Week, or maybe it's Wieck, I'm not sure. We know a bit more about Week. He was born in Germany, immigrated to Philadelphia in 1850, worked as a bookseller, stationer, and print publisher there from uh, 1850 to the 1870s. We also published lithographs, many of them bird's-eye views, including John Bachman's bird's-eye view of Philadelphia in 1857, and of course, our view of Boston, Massachusetts in 1870, designed by Fuchs. Interestingly, John Bachman, probably also from Germany, produces a different bird's-eye view of Boston just seven years later. Now, I suspect that Fuchs and Week and Bachmann were all connected through their German heritage and that Week funded a trip for Fuchs to Boston in the early summer of 1870. The Boston City Directory, in fact, lists a Theodore, as opposed to Theodore, but Theodore Fuchs artist who is boarding in downtown Boston. Now, it is surprising that Week and Fuchs had the city view printed at the New England Lithographic Company. The New England Lithographic Company had been founded in 1867, it failed in 1869, but re under new management that same year and continued until finally being wiped out by the Great Fire of Boston in 1872. They had printed a number of city views, including one of Newport, Rhode Island, and another of Framingham Common. Now, Katharina and I have been talking about why it is that the print was published in Philadelphia and printed in, uh, in Boston. Um, but, uh, Katharina says it's not a new, it's unusual, but not unheard of for a, pr- a publisher from one city to use a printer in another. Um, The Philadelphia uh, printer that Week had had been using uh, had retired in 1869 and perhaps Fuchs was encouraged to make connections with Boston printers like the New England Lithography Company. Now, the question of why people depicted Uh, uh, places in the way they did, uh, leads to the question of how these images were received. What did people think about these prints and these city views? And uh, one of the most difficult things to uncover is um, any evidence of what people thought about these views and why they may have purchased them. Now we're lucky in this case because the Boston Daily Advertiser published a short review of Fuchs's view in March of 1871. Now it's mostly laudatory, but it does quibble about some inaccuracies. Um, uh, But it is also interesting in what the writer mentions in particular, and here I want to highlight three things uh, in particular. First, he writes about an edition that was produced as a chromolithograph. So he says, the picture is a yard long by 23 inches broad, and in seven colors. So clearly he's talking about um, a a chromolithograph rather than the tinted lithograph that's on view. Second, he doesn't really pay attention to the things that attracted our attention. Um, He says the state house gets full justice and the new Providence freight depot looks as natural as life. Um, and that's surprising because to us, at least to me, when I look at that print, what really stands out is the back bay and the harbor and the transportation networks. You can barely see the state house and the Providence Freight uh, Railway Depot is, um, Often, in what's now the South End and is also not very prominent. So that's really interesting to me. And the last thing I wanted to highlight out of this review is the hope for more business and the promise of further views. This one perhaps seen from the West and looking Southwest to include quotes, the South End, Roxbury and Dorchester. Now, there is a a copy of the chromolithographed version of this uh, city view and it's at the Boston Public Library. Um, And I just wanna say in closing that it's really fascinating to pull these images apart and to think about who made them and why. Now, of course, there's the dominant commercial motive. They were primarily trying to make money by selling these. But I also think that there's an interest in depicting Boston and other cities in the region as a kind of urban machine, constantly expanding and humming with activity. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Marathon, that's a, just a perfect example of how these objects are just not pretty things to look at, but that they can really reveal quite a bit about not only our city's past, but also about artistic trends uh, in America. And I'm also very indebted to Martha for um, uncovering the mysterious Mr. Fuchs. Thank you. So our next speaker tonight will be um, James Bradley. He's an archeologist and educator with more than 40 years experience in the public and private sector. After receiving his doctorate degree from the Maxwell School at Syracuse University in 1979, Dr. Bradley served on the staff of the Massachusetts Historical Commission in the 1980s. From 1990 to 2001, he was the director of the Robert S. Peabody Museum of Archaeology in Andover, Massachusetts. His fieldwork ranges from from archaeological surveys on Alaska's North Slope to the Cape Cod and to urban salvage in downtown Boston, of which we are about to hear more shortly. He is nationally recognized as an expert on the archaeology and culture of Native American people of Northeastern North America, an active scholar He has received numerous awards for his publications and partnership. He is the founder and president of ArcLink, a nonprofit organization linking archaeology with education and preservation. I'd also like to add that Dr. Bradley is a collector. And he had assembled a magnificent collection of real photo postcards, which he donated to the prints and photographs department in 2009. And currently, we have a sampling of that collection um, on the first floor in the reading room, um, excuse me, in the sitting room, and I hope you will all have a chance to look at that after um, our talk tonight. So please welcome Dr. Bradley. Thank you.
2: Normally, I like to just stand up here and talk, but Katrina said, There is a 15-minute limit, so I'm going to do something a little unusual, and I'm going to read most of this. Why is the Athenaeum important to me as a scholar? I'd like to answer that question in two ways. The first is in terms of my own experiences over the last 35 years or so, much of it spent here in the Athenaeum. As a historian and archaeologist, I think a lot about the past and the relationship between its relationship between the present and the future. And for me, the Athenaeum is a place where all three intersect. The second way I want to answer that question is in terms of how some of the images in Katrina's wonderful exhibition help illustrate this convergence. And I want to start with this uh, great image by Christian Weber, the uh, Maker's Mark, taken in 2008. I love it just as an image. It is clear, austere, almost otherworldly. In fact, when I first saw this, I thought, this has to be photoshopped. But no, it is just a very good photo. But I also love it because there are a lot of stories embedded in it, if you know where to look. I first came to the Athenaeum in the late fall of 1979. I had just been hired by the Mass Historical Commission, the State's Historic Preservation Office, to be part of a team that was going to conduct a statewide survey of historic and archeological resources. Now, the goal was not modest. We were going to look at all 351 cities and towns in the Commonwealth divided up into eight study units. We were going to identify all the significant buildings, landscapes, and archeological sites in each community as well as develop comprehensive management plans for all of them and do this in three years. (laughs) Clearly, this was a project designed by optimists. The actual work would be done by an interdisciplinary team whose members included a geographer, an architectural historian, an economic historian, and a historical archeologist, which was me. As a newcomer to Massachusetts, I was not sure where to start in terms of finding the necessary resources, but fortunately, I was directed to the Athenaeum. Equally fortunate, At that time, the director, Rodney Armstrong, gave the team members complimentary reader's cards that allowed us to use the Athenaeum's resources for free. These were not just important, they were essential. Volumes such as vital records for towns from Arlington to Yarmouth, local histories, regional histories, and a wealth of other documents. And we've heard a little bit about some of these already. Martha's talked about bird's eye views. Bird's Eye Views were great because they helped us visualize relationships that no longer exist. For example, the complexity of the railroad and waterfront facilities in Boston. Uh, Photographs, another resource. This is the Waltham Watch Company. These helped us understand how existing buildings had changed over time. Some of these buildings still stand, but were substantially rebuilt in the the 1870s and 80s, and reused for other purposes. And then, of course, prints. Uh, This is the Middlesex Mills in Lowell. Such prints helped us identify the kinds of resources that had been lost, for the most parts, so that we could recognize the few that survived. For example, this style of woolen mill was commonly built across Massachusetts in the 1830s and 40s, but very few survived. This one was demolished in 1956. For me, the Athenaeum was the place to become grounded in what was known about a community or a set of communities before driving out to investigate it for myself. And shockingly, the process worked. We actually, it took a little longer than three years, but by the time I left the Mass Historical Commission in 1990, we had completed the individual community and regional summaries for most of the state. During this period, I was also working on a different project, converting my dissertation on the Onondaga Iroquois into a book. The Athenaeum played an important role here as well. Recently, I have completed the manuscript for the second book on the Onondaga, the chronological sequel to this first book. Initially, my intent was to publish this as a traditional book, and as a result, I negotiated a contract with the University Press of Nebraska. However, because of conversations that I'd had with friends here at the Athenaeum, I changed my mind. One of the reasons that I love the Athenaeum is that it has not been afraid to be more than, it has not been afraid to be both a traditional library, one with its own very extraordinary collections, but a digital library as well, one that serves as a portal to resources beyond its own holdings. This is not an easy balance to hold these two different roles, and doing so often raises awkward questions for exactly What is a book these days? Is it hard copy? Is it the printed version? Is it what you download to your iPad or computer? Or is it some amorphous digital entity that lives on a server somewhere? Well, I thought if the Athenaeum can wrestle with such weighty issues, I could as well. So I could publish a traditional book, one that would be designed by someone else, one that would have limits on the use of color, the number of graphics, but would still be costly to produce, or I could produce, I could publish a digital book where I would have more control over the layout and design, and I could use all the color illustrations I wanted. Now, to tell the kinds of stories that an archaeologist historian needs, you have to have good graphics to help the visitor, help the reader visualize a very different time and place. This is Fort Orange, now Albany, New York, about 1650 or to show what archeological artifacts look like, and they can be as varied as these glass beads over here. These were made in Amsterdam, and the same beads occur on sites in central New York, or this wonderful stone smoking pipe made probably by an Onondaga. It's a turtle effigy, and not only that, it's a snapping turtle, because you can see the star-shaped plastron on it. And here's two other, one from Wisconsin and one from Michigan. So there's a lot of story embedded in artifacts, but you have to show people. You can't just tell them what that means. So if I, oops, we'll come back to that. So if I chose the traditional route, the result would be a nice but expensive book, one that a few people could afford. The press estimated it would cost more than $100 to produce the book. It would, they would have to charge more than $100 to produce the kind of book that I wanted. Basically, that would be a vanity publication. If I went digital, not only would the production cost be lower and the graphics better, the resulting book would be a free download, available to anyone who wanted it. Finally, a price any student could afford. And if one really wanted a hard copy, then they can print it out, at whatever level of quality they wanted, paperback to archival. So in the end, the choice was simple. I canceled my contract with Nebraska. And I will publish this through the New York State Museum in their new digital series. I want to return, oops, not to the past, but to 2008, to where we started. Why is the Athenaeum important to me, not only as a scholar, but personally? As I've said, as an intersection point of the past, the present, and the future, the Athenaeum is crucial not only to our own understanding, but how we educate others about knowledge. Why do libraries matter? That's a hard question to answer unless you've had some practice at it. Why do we keep all this stuff? Because we continue to learn from it, especially if we know how to look at it with more than one set of eyes. So let's go back to Christian Weber's great image, Maker's Mark, taken in 2008, and let's see some of the other stories that are embedded in this. First, there's the house at the center of the image. 42 Lamassini Way, originally 42 Lowell Street, the last survivor of a row of 12 brick tenements on the block, blocks that defined what the old West End looked like. The arrow shows number 42. And I just want to thank my colleagues from the West End Museum who were great in helping me track down information on the West End, a great little museum. the other thing that this house reminds us of is that it is a survivor of the BRA's attempt to renew one of Boston's great ethnic neighborhoods by demolishing it. Let's go back to the first slide. What else can we see? Just behind number 42, you can see on the concrete retaining wall there, there's some lettering. It's a little hard to read, but it's the old motto of the North End of the, of the West End. The greatest neighborhood, this side of heaven. What a great slogan. Well, whoever decided that that was appropriate either had a wicked sense of irony or was completely oblivious to what had happened there. Now, there's something else missing from this photo, something that was a landmark for more than 80 years, and that was the elevated tracks of the Green Line. Built in 1912, those tracks loomed over Causeway and Lowell Street, connecting the underground portion of the T with the Lechmere Viaduct. When this was finally dismantled in 2004, which seems like a long time ago, the landscape finally opened up again in a way that it had not for a long, long time. There are some other things that we can see if we go back and look at this picture. The Zakim Bridge. Boston's new great landmark, and only the latest of one of the many, many bridges that have crossed the Charles at this location. And way in the back, right up there over the corner, you can just see the Bunker Hill Monument, not only historic in its own right, but one of the inspirations for the bridge. But we can go even farther back if we put on our retrospective, magical archaeo-nerd glasses and look at what's below ground. So 42 Lomasney Way, was not just a remnant of the West End, it also stands on the western edge of the Bullfinch Triangle. Bullfinch Triangle was the land created during the first first decades of the 19th century as Beacon Hill was steadily cut down and used to fill in the old mill pond. This is the area between uh, North Station and Haymarket with Merrimack Street on the west side and uh, North Washington on the other. And you can see there roughly where the old mill pond was. Now, the mill pond itself was begun in 1643 in order to put some of that tidal marsh to more appropriate use by making it uh, the source of power for a tidal mill. But even before that, it is likely that Indian people lived at this location right there on the, the edge of the river, just like those who, in Back Bay, built tidal fish traps and use those off and on for several thousand years. This is a rough reconstruction of what a tidal fish weir must have looked like. And this is the section of the fish weir that was found when they were excavating the Green Line in the 1930s in the middle of Boylston Street. Could be more of it down below Lamosny Way. We never know. And we can even look farther back than that. We can go back to the end of the Pleistocene to maybe 12,000 years ago when the first Indians, the Paleo-Indians, came into this country. At that time, sea level was probably about 50 meters, at least 50 meters lower than it is now. And this would have been a nice upland location with a fast-flowing Charles River down below, a great place to hunt caribou with these distinctive fluted points in an environment that was very much like Southern Labrador. Well, just to round things out, Let's go back to 2008 and see what's changed since then. Well, just above the highway ramps over here, we see the old Spalding Rehab Hospital, now empty, and relocated to an excellent new facility over in Charlestown. The most obvious change is that we can no longer see the edge of the garden. That is now dominated by Avalon North Station, a new 38-story luxury residential tower So instead of the greatest neighborhood, the site of heaven, we now get promotional lines lines like, live modern, live up. Where you live is where you come alive. Well, I hope that is not the portent for where this city is headed. And finally, alas, Maker's Mark is gone, now replaced by an iPhone 6 photograph. And the snow is gone as well. Okay, enough. I want to end this with some thank yous first to Katharina, for reminding us of the wealth of resources that the Athenaeum houses, and for encouraging us to use them. I want to thank all the Athenaeum staff for making this such a warm and welcoming place. And I want to thank all of you who, through your interest and support, keep the Athenaeum the vibrant scholarly community that it is. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much James and that's just a perfect example of um, how scholars can reveal to us things that we would not ordinarily see in an image and it's really one of the perks of my job here that I get to work with wonderful researchers and scholars like this who um, share their work with me. So we're um, running out of time and uh, we will uh, take questions and answers at the reception and hope that you can all join us there. Uh, just a reminder that this is one of two events and so our next event associated with the exhibition will be on July 27th when I've invited three creative writers to um, be inspired by the, an object in the exhibition. So thank you all very much.